Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. Good morning. My name's Stephen Baker. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have a cold. And so I'm going to be coughing, and I'm going to be sniffing. I have water. No one needs to bring it to me. Get it right here. Um, hopefully I won't be sniveling. We don't need that. But I will be sniffing, so sorry. We were in the second of a series on the Reformation, uh, remembering the, this is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, 1517-2017. And uh, so we're, we're talking for five weeks about some of the legacy uh, that we have because of the Reformation, clarity on things, issues that uh, we understand better from the scriptures because of the work of God in the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago. And that's what church, church history is. It's all about conflict. Church history is all about conflict. It has always been about conflict. Uh, Think about the history of the Old Testament. The Old Testament people of God is just a history of conflict, one fight, one battle after another, not just with foreign armies, but amongst themselves, fighting, controversy, conflict. The early church period was a time of intense conflict. Um, Every one of the New Testament epistles, all the letters, the books of the New Testament are filled with fighting, with conflict, with, with controversy, with heresy, with bad practice. That's at the heart of most of the New Testament. Most Christians think, uh, today think of the early church as a simple, pristine, pure age that we all need to get back to. Everyone got along back then, and there was no nasty stuff, there was no doctrine that causes division. There was no church hierarchy that people could abuse. It was just a big commune of peace and, uh, and love and, and daisies. And that, nothing could be further from the truth. Heretics were rampant in the early church, even during the time of the apostles. And if that's what it was like when the apostles were still alive, again, read the New Testament, one fight after another, then what happens when the, when the, when the apostles are gone? The conflicts don't all of a sudden go away. They, in, they intensify, they increase, they continue. But here's the thing. The presence of conflict in the church is not entirely a bad thing. It's not entirely a bad thing at all. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 11, 18 and 19. Let's listen to what he says. Writing to a church that's full of fighting, and here's what he says. From the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it, for there must also be factions among you. There must be factions, there must be fights, there must be divisions, there must be conflicts so that those who are, who are approved may become evident among you. You see this? He says, there are divisions, factions, conflicts, 
and they serve a purpose in the church. The Apostle Paul says, there must be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Uh, Factions serve a purpose. Divisions, fights, they serve a purpose. They force us to have clarity. Right? Who really stands on the truth of the Scripture? Who really has genuine faith in the gospel of our Lord Jesus? Who really lives as children of God walking in repentance and, and uh, obedience to the law of God? Who really is, is the approved among us? It happens through conflict. God allows the church to have factions and divisions and fights. And as those fights play out, the truth becomes more and more clear. Not only the truth about the people, but the truth about Scripture, what it teaches. The truth itself becomes more and more clear as a result of these fights. That's the way it is, it's the way it always has been. And so in the early church, there was a conflict about the Bible. How should, we, how should Christians think about the Old Testament? Should we take the Old Testament and read it as Christian Scriptures? It was a fight in the, early, in the early church. It brought clarity. And then there was a conflict about the Trinity. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, who are they? How do, relate, how do they relate to one another? What's going on with that? Then there was a conflict about Jesus Christ himself. Is he a creature made by God, but less than God, or is he co-equal with God the Father in his divine nature? There's conflict about how, how salvation comes to us. Does it come to us by working by obeying things and doing stuff, or does it come to us as a gift of the free grace of God? On and on it went. One fight after another. But think about these fights. What do they produce? What they produced was clarity. Clarity. What exactly does the Bible teach about the nature of Jesus Christ? We have to dig into it to figure it out. Here's someone saying one thing, it doesn't seem to fit what the Bible says, let's really nail this. What does the Bible teach about the nature of Jesus Christ? What does the Bible teach about sin and salvation? This guy is saying this, what does it really say? Let's focus, let's sharpen. And the product of that clarity was very often a statement of belief, a creed, or a confession of faith. Some, today we just recited together as a, as a church the Nicene Creed, right? The Nicene Creed came out of the conflict about who is Jesus? Is he less God than the Father? Or is he what? Very God of very God, God of God, light of light, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. You see, the fight brought clarity. This is what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is. And so thank God for the fight. Thank God for these fights. They're a gift to the church. Because of these fights, it comes to light who is approved. It comes to light who believes the truth. It comes to light what the truth is. And so the fights are good. They benefit the church by forcing us to see the Bible clearly. Now, of course, by the way, this is still happening today. This isn't just stuff that happened 500 years ago or 1,500 years ago. 
These kinds of clarity-producing fights are still happening in the church today. Christians don't have a stomach for them, but they're here. We have to see them as good. Think of today's conflicts in the church. Feminism, sexuality, and, and in, a, in a weird roundabout way, that is now coming back into the doctrine of the Trinity, causing people to, to have clarity about, wait a minute, what exactly do we mean by this? What is exactly does the scripture mean by that? All these conflicts are still in the church and are still going on, and we should thank God for them. We should thank God for them and be willing to engage in them. Your children, your children's children, 500 years from now, okay, will be thanking you if you fight today. Now, why am I going on and on about this? Well, because we're remembering and celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. This is what the Reformation was. It was a huge fight. It was a huge fight. A fight about the Bible, a fight about justification, a fight about the sacraments, about authority, about the church. And that fight was not a bad thing. It was a huge blessing for God's people. Uh, There are many Christians today, many Protestants who are looking back, whose heritage comes from the Reformation, and they're 500 years later, they're thinking, wait a minute, was that? Should 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 we be ashamed of that? fight. No, no, we should thank God for that fight. The gospel really was at stake. And we'll get into that in the next three weeks or so as we get into more of this series. Last week, Pastor Bailey preached about how the Reformation gave the Bible back to God's people. Today, we're going to see how the Reformation gave the church back to God's people. Now, it should be obvious uh, to us that the, the heart, at the heart of the fight of the Reformation was the doctrine of the church, all right? Who is the head of the church? Is it the Pope or is it Jesus? That's an important question, right? That's something worth fighting about. Uh, how do you become a part of the church? What kind of power and authority does the church have? What exactly is a true church? Is the Roman Catholic Church not only a true church, but the one true church? Because that's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. Are the Protestant churches that came out of the Reformation false churches? Is this right here, what we have right here, is this a true church? How can we know? Remember last week, how do we know? We go back to the Bible, we go back to the scriptures. The only way to know if a church is a true church is by going back to the scriptures. This is what the reformers did. They were just, that was the point. Wait a minute, we gotta get back and see what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? And what has the church always believed about what the Bible says? So we go back to the scriptures, and one of the places that the reformers went when they were Thinking about the nature of the church was Acts chapter two. And so it's gonna be on the screen. You can open up in your Bible. If you have your Bible, it'll be handy because we're gonna do some more stuff in Acts two that's not on the screen, but go to Acts chapter two. 
And I wanna read for you uh, verses 37 to 47. This is the, uh, the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. He's preaching a, a sermon to the gathered Jews from, who are gathered there from all over the nations because they're together for this feast of Pentecost. And he's preached a sermon to them. We'll talk about the sermon in a minute. And here's what happens at the end. Verse 37, now when they heard this, when the Jews who were listening heard this sermon, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. And so then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day they were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. This is the word of the Lord. So, what are the marks of a true church? Well, here's what what the Roman Catholic Church had come to teach in the Middle Ages and continue to teach to this day. All right? Again, a fight, right? Here's Here's one side. Here's one answer to the question, what is the true church, is what the Roman Catholic Church's, uh, Church teaches to this day. And they taught that the Roman Catholic Church was the one true church because they claimed there had been an unbroken succession at, or chain all the way back to the apostles. All right? There had been an unbroken chain all the way back to the apostles. In other words, we know what the true church is because the true church was governed by bishops, elders, pastors, bishops over a city who had been appointed by bishops, right? Who had been appointed by bishops, who had been appointed by an apostle. And the true church is the church where you can, where you can see the, the chain that goes all the way back This guy ordained by this guy, ordained by this guy, ordained by this guy, ordained by Peter or Paul, right? And that guarantees that that's the true church. This is called apostolic succession. Now, is that the biblical mark of a true church? Is that it? As long as an apostle founded the church or as long as the pastor or bishop had been ordained by an apostle or someone who had been ordained by an apostle, that's the way, that guarantees that a church is true and faithful? Really? 
No. No, why not? Because we have record both in the New Testament and in history of churches founded by apostles that abandoned the true faith. We have warnings that men who were in fact ordained by the Apostle Paul himself or were ordained by men who were ordained by the Apostle Paul, that these men were about to become wolves. Think about, uh, in particular, about the church in Ephesus. All right, read about this in the book of Acts. There's a book called Ephesians, right, written to the church in Ephesus. This church in Ephesus, Paul, the apostle, had founded that church. And he obviously was at the beginning of the church. He was there for, for a while. He probably ordained elders in that city. Uh, he certainly sent Timothy, his, his son in the faith, right? A man who had entered the ministry by his hand. He, entered, he, he, he sent Timothy to be a pastor in that church and to ordain the elders that were coming after him. Okay, Paul has a direct connection to the church in Ephesus. But remember what? the Apostle Paul said to the elders in Ephesus. This is Acts chapter 20. And the Apostle Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to get um, arrested and he's going to be sent. He's probably going to be killed. He knows this is what's happening. And so he wants to meet with these Ephesian elders one last time. Acts chapter 20. Part of what he says is this, verse 29. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. You see this? There's no guarantee that this church in Ephesus will continue in faithfulness to God. There's no guarantee at all The elders have to be on guard, he says. They have to be on the alert. Savage wolves will arise, not from the outside. But he says, from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Remember, these savage wolves are in the direct line of apostolic succession. Do you get this? These are men who either the Apostle Paul himself ordained or who were ordained by someone the the Apostle Paul ordained. Direct line of apostolic succession. And that is no guarantee that they will remain faithful. None. Savage wolves will arise. You must be on guard. And by the way, when he said these words to these Ephesian elders, the church was only five years old. Five years old, from the very beginning of the church, it has in the seed, in, in it, the, the potential, the seeds of savage wolves and heresy and faithlessness and apostasy. That's why they have to be on guard. Now, where else do we read about the church in Ephesus, by the way? Hmm? Book of Revelation, chapter two. Just listen to this. This is Jesus speaking to the church in Ephesus. He says to John, the apostle, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write this. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. I know your deeds, 
and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they're not. So evidently they listen to what Paul said and they're on guard, okay, good for them. And you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. You've left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, you've fallen, church in Ephesus, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at the first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. I'm almost done with you, church in Ephesus, I'm almost done with you and if you don't repent, I'm gonna come and, and I'm gonna make you not a church anymore. That's what it means to remove the lampstand. This is written to the church in Ephesus, planted by the Apostle Paul. He spent three years there. This wasn't a drive-by church plant, you know? He had been there for three years. He had established the church. He had ordained elders. Timothy, his right-hand man, was the pastor. Timothy is to ordain elders. We read about that in 1 Timothy 3. He warns them himself in person. Ten years after the the beginning of the church, this is what Jesus says to them. Ten years after the beginning of the church. He said, I'm almost done with you. Unless you repent. So you see, being founded by an apostle is no guarantee of faithfulness. Being ordained by an apostle is no guarantee of faithfulness. The Roman Catholic claim that they are the one true church because they can show you the paper chain, you know, they can show you the trail that goes all the way back to, to Peter or to Paul. That claim is bogus. Now listen, there is no guarantee that this church will remain faithful either. None. Don't ever take that for granted. You, you, the congregation of this church, must appoint elders and pastors who will guard the flock. You must appoint elders and pastors who will be on the alert. Nothing will automatically keep any of us, any of us, pastors and elders, nothing will somehow automatically keep us from becoming savage wolves. If this church is to remain faithful, it will remain faithful because we have careful, watchful men who are willing to discipline false teachers and chase out the wolves even when the wolves are us, even when the wolves are our fellow elders. You're about to do this, right? You just got the announcements in your bulletin. We're about to do this. We do it every year. You, you are the ones who, who pick the elders and the deacons. And so that weight of responsibility comes back on you. You ultimately decide who the elders and pastors will be. Scripture says in 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy, whichever, the time will come when they, meaning you, (laughs) will heap to themselves teachers, right? The time will come when you will choose elders and pastors who tell you what your itching ears want to hear. Remember that passage? 
That's on you. It's on you. So choose men for yourselves who don't itch your ears, but who tell you the truth and who will be willing to fight the wolves that come up even from within us. So apostolic succession, no, no. That's not the mark of the true church. It's not that we've been ordained by somebody, by somebody, by somebody who was ordained by an elder. What is it then? What, is, what are the marks of a true church? Well, the reformers saw in the Bible, because they were going back to the Bible, they, they saw in the Bible two basic marks of a true church. A true church, number one, has true gospel preaching, true preaching of the word, and a true church has the right administration of the sacraments. And the reformers included in that right administration of the sacraments the right exercise of church discipline, okay? And so some list that, the the right uh, practice of church discipline as a third mark of a true church. Others just include it with the sacraments because the sacraments are the place where church discipline comes down to a fine point, particularly at the Lord's Supper. So the last step of faithful church discipline, when all other attempts at discipline have failed, is excommunication. It's being barred from taking the Lord's Supper. And so the right administration of the sacraments and church discipline are inseparable. They go hand in hand. If you don't have the sacraments, you can't have church discipline. There is no discipline. There is no final discipline that you can do. You know, Campus Crusade can't discipline people the way the church can. Right? Because they don't have the sacraments. So church discipline, if you don't have the sacraments, then you can't have church discipline. And if you don't have church discipline, you also don't have the sacraments. You don't have the right administration of the sacraments because this, the table, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, is not just, you know, for whoever might just be randomly passing by. The table is for the church. And the church is marked by baptism And it's under the authority of the elders and the pastors. And there are some people that we say, every time we have the Lord's Supper, you may not eat this, right? Church discipline and the sacraments go hand in hand. Now look at Acts 2, and we'll see these two marks of a true church. Do we see true gospel preaching in Acts 2? (laughs) Yeah, I mean... It's a sermon, right? It's a gospel sermon. It's, one, it's the first sermon, you could say, of the Christian church. It's the first sermon after Pentecost, okay? Um, what's going on? The disciples are gathered together. Jesus had said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit to you. Go to Jerusalem and wait for it. Just wait. Go and wait, and I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit. And so they go to Jerusalem. They gather together. They're in prayer. When they're gathered together in prayer on this day, this feast day of Pentecost, waiting for Jesus, who had ascended to heaven to pour out the Holy Spirit on them, and when he kept his promise and he poured out his Holy Spirit, the disciples, it says in verse 11, start speaking the mighty deeds of God. So having the Holy Spirit causes them to speak. And these disciples of Jesus are speaking to Jews from all over the known world. They had come from all over to to celebrate the feast of Pentecost. And so they have different languages, and you know the story. They hear 
the preaching of the mighty deeds of God in their own language. Whatever, however you figure that out, this is a miracle. Whatever's going on there, clearly it's a miracle. And these Jews from all over the world are amazed. They don't understand what's going on. They say in chapter two, verse 12, it says, they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they're full of sweet wine, they're all drunk. And so upon that occasion, the apostle Peter stands up and he preaches to them. He stands up and he says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him from the dead again. God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And then he says, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. And what happened? I already read to you what happened. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see this? Peter is preaching the gospel to this huge crowd of Jews. And when he preaches about Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, when he preaches about their sin, and the most intense thing he could say to them about their sin at that moment to the, that crowd is, you killed him. You crucified him. This is, your, this is your doing. This wicked sin of putting Jesus to death. When he preaches about that, they're convicted. They're pierced to the heart. They become undone. Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent. So what is true gospel preaching? What is true gospel preaching? It's not what it's often passed off to be today. Right? The Apostle Peter stands up in front of this crowd and he says to the men of Israel, you need to invite Jesus into your heart. No. Men of Israel, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Men of Israel, listen to me. If you have enough faith, you can be rich just like me. Right? Gospel preaching? Is that what Peter did? No. And so what is it? What is true gospel preaching? Well, it starts with our sin. The word gospel means good news. And there can be no good news without first declaring the bad news. The bad news is that we are wicked rebels who hate God. 
We hate him. We hate his ways. We hate his truth. We refuse to worship him. We refuse to honor him as God. We refuse to give thanks to him. We're rebels. And so we are rightly and justly under the condemnation of God's justice and wrath. There is nothing more right than God to judge us and to condemn us. And there is nothing you can do, there's nothing you can do about that. There's nothing you can do to fix that. Because your sin goes down deep into your bones, deep into the core of your heart. This is who we are, we're sinners, we hate God. We love the darkness rather than the light. Because our deeds are evil. And so we deserve to die. That is where true gospel preaching has to start. Not with, with God's wonderful plan for you, but with your rebellion. God's plan for you is to send you to hell. That's where gospel preaching starts. And you deserve it. I deserve it. We see that in Peter's sermon in Acts 2. Verse 23 This man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You did this, he says to them. He says in verse 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Starts with sin. True gospel preaching includes the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners. Of course. Acts uh, 2, 23 and 24. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan of, and foreknowledge of God. This is the plan of God. This wasn't an accident. The cross, the death of Jesus wasn't some oops that he blundered into. This was the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God from, from eternity past This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, but God raised him up again. God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. You can't possibly preach the gospel without preaching sin and judgment, and you can't possibly preach the gospel without preaching the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the good news. That is the solution. That is the God's remedy. That is what God does to offer life to sinners. You deserve to die, but I killed my son instead so that you don't have to die if you'll trust him. What else? True gospel preaching also includes the lordship and authority of Jesus. The lordship and authority of King Jesus. Verse 32. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God. Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God. Not just raised from the dead, but exalted to the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. 
For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself, David says, the Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus has been exalted to God's right hand. He is sitting there as Lord, reigning on the throne now until all of his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Therefore, he says, let the house, all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus, the, the gospels say, the people of Israel mocked Jesus for being the friend of sinners, right? He was a friend of sinners. Little children loved him, right? They, they were always coming to him and his disciples were always trying to shoo them away and he got angry at them for doing that. He loved the little children. All this is true, but he's not your little friend. He's not your little buddy. He's not your little snugly blanket. He's the high king of heaven. Lord and Christ. True gospel preaching, therefore, calls the people to repent. To repent, to turn away from their rebellion against God, to turn away from their idolatry, to turn away from their hatred of the, of the light, to turn away from their sin, and to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. That's your only hope. So Peter says in Verse 37, now when they had heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter with the rest of the apostles, brethren, what do we do? And Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so don't let anyone fool you. There is no gospel preaching without the preaching of repentance. It's not just something that you tack on to your life to make it nicer. The preaching of the gospel shatters us. They were pierced to the heart. What do we do? What do we do? Oh, just add Jesus to your life. You know, no, it'll be. No, 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 repent. Repent. Now, the right preaching of the gospel leads to the right administration of the sacraments which is the second mark of a true church. What are the sacraments? Well, that's another thing that they were fighting about 500 years ago. The Roman Catholic Church said and says to this day that there are how many? Seven, seven sacraments, right? So baptism, uh, confirmation, the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, penance, confessing your sins to a priest, uh, anointing of the sick, or they call it extreme unction. You've all seen the, the movies or the, you know, on the battlefield, the guy's dying, call a priest, call a priest. They gotta get a priest because they have to have that, okay? Anointing the sick, holy orders, that's either you know, becoming a monk or a nun or a priest. And if you don't do that, then matrimony, all right? Seven sacraments. And the Roman Catholic Church claims that salvation is impossible without the sacraments. 
You cannot be saved without these sacraments. This is how salvation comes to you. Right after the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church is reeling trying to figure out how to deal with this, how to fight it, and so they call a council, and it's called the Council of Trent, and it goes on for several years, and it ends in about 1563. All right, so Martin Luther, 1517, the whole fight begins, really, in earnest, 1563, the end of the Council of Trent. And what they're doing in the Council of Trent is trying to contradict all the teaching of this new thing called the Reformation, which is just trying to get back to what the Bible actually says, the teaching of the apostles, right? And so they write, they meet, and they argue, they write, and they come up with this long statement, and it's point by point trying to contradict the teaching of the reformers, okay? And they say everything that the reformers teach is worthy of, you know what the word they use? Anathema. We just saw that word in 1 Corinthians 16, I think, right? Anathema. What does anathema mean? Damn you. May you be damned. May you go to hell. To hell with you and your teaching. That's what anathema means. I'm not trying to be crass. That's just what it means. Here's what they say. This is... uh, Rule or canon number four from the Council of Trent. If anyone says that the sacraments of the new law are not necessary unto salvation, all right? If anyone says you don't need the sacraments from the Roman Catholic Church in order to be a genuine Christian, if anyone says that, you don't need the sacraments, but, they are, but instead they're superfluous. If anyone says the, the, the sacraments, all seven of them, are superfluous, and that without them or without the desire thereof, men obtain God through faith alone, the grace of justification. I know that's a complicated sentence. If anyone says you don't get justified by God by the sacraments, if anyone says you get justified by faith alone, okay, do you you hear what I'm saying? Let him be anathema. If anyone says you don't need the sacraments to be justified, this is what the Roman Catholic Church teaches to this day. If anyone teaches that, let them be anathema. Which means the Roman Catholic Church, don't be, don't be confused or misled by niceness. I, I rub shoulders with Roman Catholics all the time. I know many of you do. You're standing on the, on the sidewalk at Planned Parenthood, for example. Some of you go down there, which is great. And you're, who's there? Well, it's basically us and Roman Catholics. And it's tempting to think, well, I mean, come on, the Reformation? What, what were they so uptight about? These are nice people. And they pray uh, <clears throat> to Mary. These are, they believe that we deserve to go to hell for believing that we're justified by faith alone and not by the sacraments. All right, nothing's changed. This is called sacramentalism. That salvation comes through the church, big bucket of grace, 
and it gets dispensed to people. Only the priests are allowed to do this, right? It gets dispensed to people through the sacraments. And the more of that that you get, the more saved you are, the more justified you are. That's sacramentalism. There is no salvation apart from partaking in the sacraments. That's the means that God uses to save us. Now you can see how that view of the sacraments cannot stand with the true preaching of the gospel, right? How can those things go together? If you have true preaching of the gospel, then you destroy sacramentalism. Now sacramentalism is alive and well, not just in the Roman Catholic Church. It's coming back in force into the Reformed churches through baptism. Um, It's right over there at Sherwood Oaks, East, West, we're on the West side. Okay, Sherwood Oaks Christian Church and all the Christian churches in in town that are called Christian churches, that's a denomination that's not really a denomination. You know what I'm talking about, right? Um, Believe that that baptism is what gives you regeneration that you're regenerated by being baptized. Baptismal regeneration is the doctrine of the, of the Christian churches. They don't, many of them don't talk about that much, but trust me, it, it's true. Sacramentalism is alive and well. Sacramentalism lives in my heart. I really want there to be something that I can do, all right? Now, contrary to the Roman Catholic Church, there are not seven sacraments, but only two. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. How do we know that? Well, we we read the Bible. And we see them both here in Acts 2. Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized. And then it says, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day were added about 3,000 souls. What is baptism? What's the deal with that? Well, remember, Jesus commanded that the church would go to all the nations and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism, no matter which side of the baptism question you fall on, whether you believe that infants should be baptized or you don't believe that infants should be baptized, it doesn't matter. No matter which side of that you fall down on, right? Fall down on. That you fall on. Baptism is the visible outward sign of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. It's a visible outward sign of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's a sign of repentance. It's a sign of being a, a public sign of being a visible member of God's people, the church, which is why Jesus says what, he, or what Peter says what he says. Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That does not mean that being baptized forces God to forgive your sins. You don't get forgiveness because you're baptized. That's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. That's not what he's saying here. Forgiveness comes to all who repent and throw themselves at the mercy of Jesus Christ by faith, and baptism is is a sign of that. It's not the cause of it, it's a sign of it. It's a public statement. Here I am. I have thrown myself on Jesus to be washed by his blood. And so we see also the Lord's Supper here in Acts 2. Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, 
the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That's the Lord's Supper. Now, these are the marks of a true church. True preaching of the gospel, right administration of the sacraments, comes along with that is church discipline. Can't separate them. This, these are the marks of a true church. It's not that we were ordained by someone who is ordained by someone, not that, but it's the apostles' teaching, the doctrine. Where do we have the apostles' doctrine? When we say what we say, we just said it a minute ago in the Nicene Creed, remember? I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. You know what we mean by that, or you should. We don't mean, when we say Catholic, we don't mean Roman Catholic. We wouldn't be celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation if we were all for Roman Catholic. This is not about Roman Catholic. This is about Catholic. It means universal. We believe that God has his church in all the nations, right? That's what we mean by Catholic. One holy Catholic apostolic church. How is it apostolic? Is it apostolic because... So-and-so is ordained by so-and-so is ordained by so-and-so? No, it's apostolic because it's devoted to the teaching of the apostles. So those are the marks of the church. Now, here's the thing for us. The true church is not a specimen, right? You start talking about the marks of a true church and you start thinking in like a scientist, you know, like a botanist. I have in my possession in this little cage here, you know, a true church. It's not a specimen. It's not something to be uh, dissected and analyzed like that. It's not an artifact. It's not a club, you know, it's not... um, a dead institution, just some formal thing that we go through because that's what we've always done. The true church is what? The true church is a family. Think about this. When there is true gospel preaching that God uses to produce true faith and repentance, this is what God does. This is how God gives faith. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10. When God creates faith by true gospel preaching and repentance, and when those believers openly and publicly confess their faith in Jesus Christ by being baptized, when those baptized believers gather together and worship and pray and break bread around the Lord's table, what do you have? What do you have there? Do you have perfection? Is that what you see every time we come together and and celebrate the Lord's Supper, some kind of perfect thing? No. Cleanness? No. Think about what it would have been like in this first church here in in Jerusalem. 3,000 people all of a sudden are Christians. And they're all from different cultures because they all have different languages, right? And all of a sudden, like, we're 
brothers and sisters. Is that clean? No. Perfect? No. But what was it? It was a family. Let me read the end of this and we'll be done. Look at verse 42. They, 3,000 Christians who'd just been baptized, who'd come to faith, didn't really know each other before this, didn't have a lot in common. They're from different places and different languages and different cultures, right? Remember this? Acts 2. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. You see this? They're eating together. They're sharing with one another. They have one mind. Praising God and having favor with all the people. All the people are seeing this and saying, hey, that's pretty neat. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Here's what God uses to spread his church. You know what he uses? He uses the church. He uses the church. He uses you, loving each other, sharing with one another, helping those who are in need, having one another in your homes, sharing your meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. And the people see that and they can't figure that out because you're all weird. You know what I mean? You're all different from one, we're all different from one another. This isn't a train club, (laughs) you know? This isn't a model train club and the reason we're all here together is because we all like model trains. But it's a family. It's a family. So love the church. Love the church. Be on guard. Protect her. Love her. Let's pray.